We're in 12, um, chapter 12 of Joshua. Really interesting. Uh, it's a, if I was, we'll read it as we go. Uh, kind of a why passage. Why in the world is this here? It's just a summary of the first 12 chapters of Joshua, uh, first 11 chapters, plus it even goes back. And we'll look at why uh, and make sense of the word of God. It's there for a purpose. Every word of it is uh, true. Every word of it is important because it all comes from God. I was reading one of the commentators uh, uh, spoke of uh, the emperor Domitian, uh, part of a family that had been the emperors of Rome, Titus, you, you, you might remember Titus's name. He was the uh, general who leveled Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And then shortly after that, he was, uh, became emperor. Well, after he died in 82, his, his, his younger brother took over in 80. And in 82, uh, 12 years after the uh, leveling of Rome, uh, uh, his Domitian, his brother, built uh, there in the Roman plaza an ark, A-R-C, uh, to his brother and all of his military uh, victories, which again included the siege and sacking of Jerusalem. This ark of Titus commemorating his feats. On the south side of the panel, apparently it's, it was this ark that had uh, engraving and things on both sides. On the south side, it was a picture of the Roman soldiers carrying the menorah, the, the lampstand, out of the temple and away as they had conquered Jerusalem. Uh, uh, symbolic, if you for for Israel of the light going out of Jerusalem because they had rejected their Messiah. Uh, And uh, so the destruction of the city, the temple, resulted in the removal of the light. They carried the lampstand away, uh, and as they did, we know that uh, the Lord turned to the apostles to take the... uh, light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles as uh, Israel had uh, rejected their privilege that they had had. 2 Corinthians 4, 6, that's a quote out of 2 Corinthians. and uh, In Acts 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas go to the Gentiles on the first missionary uh, journey. Well, chapter 12 is sort of the end of the 11 first 11 chapters, that's the conquest by the uh, Israeli uh, military. Really, the first, the first section is the first five chapters where, where uh, they enter into the promised land. They set up camp there at Gilgal before chapter 6 through 12 lists all of the conquest. Uh, this chapter 12 is the end, and it's really just a summary of what's already been said. Uh, we could have easily gone from where we ended last week at the end of chapter 11. Remember, we took the north, the south, and then we took the north, and we have 
the completion of the conquest to this point, we could have gone right to chapter 13 and divided up the tribes and their allotments, which is what 13 and 14 uh, and, and other cha- the next chapters do. But yet this chapter 12 is here uh, to summarize uh, kind of a boring reading. It's, uh, it's a rehearsing of what we already know by and large. Let's look at the beginning of verse 1. It's really uh, the one who mentioned in his commentary about um, uh, Domitian building this, this uh, ark to his brother Titus. He, meant, he, he kind of uh, uh, made the analogy that this is like an ark commemorating Moses and Joshua's feats as they take the land promised by God to the Israelite people, commemorating Moses and Joshua's victories. And they defeat king after king, and it's just a list of those who are defeated. Gives a comprehensive view of the conquest all in one place. Uh, demonstrating that God is fulfilling his promise to Abraham, though it be 500 years later. So we have a, a, an example of patience, of God's timing, of how it is that God works uh, differently on a different timetable than ours. William Gurnall, a Puritan, one of the Puritans, will have some of his books back there. He wrote three chapters on the Christian, or three volumes on the Christian armor. He said... Promises are, the promises of God are dated, but with a mysterious character. And for lack of skill in God's chronology, we are prone to think God forgets us, when indeed we can't forget ourselves in being so bold as to set God a time for our own and in being angry that he comes not just then to us. God's answering of or fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant of the land that was from Genesis 12 and 15 uh, belonged to his own timing. And we're reminded over and over about that in these first five books of the Bible uh, or after the giving of the covenant. And then finally now, after 400 years of slavery, 40 years of wandering, uh, the people of Israel realized and enter into the, their land. What God's doing is showing us that there's only one sovereign over the people of God, and Canaan must be cleared out, and God does it as he sees fit. First six verses uh, are going to be rehearsing of the, of the victories on the east side of the Jordan as Moses leads the people, and they're coming up from the south uh, where they come come up from the south and then around across the Jordan into Canaan. Uh, So let's read them. These are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. So beyond the Jordan, the rider is in Canaan, right? So it's beyond the Jordan to the east on the other side of the Jordan River. Uh, toward the sunrise from the valley of the, of the Arnon to Mount Hermon. Um, I don't have my, I have, I don't have my, 
pictures here. You may have a map in your head from the Dead Sea all the way up way north of the Sea of Galilee. On the east side of the Jordan is, is the boundary he gives right here. Uh, the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. The Arabah being the desert areas on the, on the east side as you go outside of uh, the land that the uh, tribes will uh, possess on the east side. Um, Sihon, verse 2, king of the Amorites, lived at Heshbon and ruler of Aroer, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, uh, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is half of Gilead. And the Arabah to the Sea of Chinneroth. What, remember what the Sea of Chinneroth is? It's got another name. Sea of Galilee. Yes. Uh, so from the Arabah to the Sea of Chinneroth, eastward to the direction of Beth Jeshemoth, to the Sea of the Arabah and the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea also, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah. See, this is exciting. <laughs> right? No? Okay. Well, King Sihon, is he, his land, as they come up from uh, Egypt and they're, they've been going, Sihon, the king, uh, uh, will not let them pass through the land. So they just decide to take it. And the Israelites take it. And this, is the, this will be two of the tribes' land that they have. Remember, there's two and a half tribes that stay on the east side of, of the Jordan River. Um, it's uh, uh, Reuben and Gad. Uh, this is their inheritance right here. Now, they have to go fight in Canaan before they can come back and settle their land. Remember, as they... They want to cross over, and they ask to inherit the land over here. God says, or, or Joshua says, that's okay. You can have this land, but you've got to go fight first. So they leave the women and children and all the cattle and all of that on the east side while the men go conquer Canaan, and then they come back and settle. Well, this land of Sihon is... Gad and Reuben, where they will end up. Then Og of Bashan, in verse 4, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived in Ashtaroth and at Edria, and ruled over Mount Hermon, way north, and Salakah and Al Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Maacathites, over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And so this Og, king of Bashan, that's where the half-tribe of Manasseh, who stayed on the east side of the Jordan River, that's their land. So all the way from the Dead Sea, almost the bottom of the Dead Sea, up way past the Sea of Galilee, are these is conquered by Moses, just the two main kings that are conquered. And that becomes two and a half tribes' inheritance. And so nine and a half tribes will be uh, on the other side as they go over with Joshua. Right? So why are we going back to Numbers? 
This happened in Numbers, I think, 21 is when this story is told. Why well, would go back to Numbers 21 as he's rehearsing the conquest? Well, partly it's because these folks are going to be over in this land. Uh, and uh, an, uh, another reason is they're afraid that they may not be counted as part of Israel later on. Uh, Look at, uh, turn over to 22, Joshua 22. Reuben and Gad fear one day they might be excluded from the people of God. And so the author seems to put this here to make sure to solidify the fact that they are part of Israel. Uh, But Joshua 22, let's start at verse 21. And we'll see that since. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. They're saying, God is our Lord. If we did this uh, in rebellion, if we wanted this land and stayed over here in rebellion, then don't pay attention to us. He says, he knows, verse... uh, well, okay, building, verse 23, building an altar to turn away from firing the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or great offerings or peace offering on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. If we're going to worship idols over here, take vengeance. Verse 24, no, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, What have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So the children might make our, so your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore, we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generation after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in the presence with our in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, We should say, Behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord, our God, that stands before this tabernacle. So this is establishing the fact that those who stay to settle on the east side of the river are part of Israel, right? Got it? That, that, so 
uh, it's for a sake of the unity of Israel, that they're one people, though they're living, they're not outcasts, they're not second-class folks. So he so he includes the conquered kings of Sihon and Og under Moses as the leader to say, remember, God gave victories over there too when you get to settle down here in the conquest. Uh, so it's to stress the unity of all of Israel. We all right? Okay. Okay. Uh, so you got he he just laid out the boundaries. One of them said one of the uh, commentators said so as Pontius Pilate made his way into the Apostles' Creed. Anybody know the Apostles' Creed well enough to know about Pontius Pilate crucified under Pontius Pilate as part of the uh, statement that the Apostles' Creed has in it. As Pontius Pilate made his way into the Apostles' Creed, Sihon and Og into the Israel's praise and prayers. We'll see in Nehemiah, Nehemiah prays in Nehemiah 9 as they're dedicating the temple. You gave them, the uh, people of this day, you gave them kingdoms and peoples allotted to them from every corner, so they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Eshvan, and of Og, king of Bashan. <coughs> so, and then in Psalm 135, uh, they're praising God for uh, conquering, giving them uh, the victory over Sihon and Og. So they make it into Israel's history books too. Uh, so there's that specific description so that they wouldn't be considered second class. I think that's probably good for us to hear. They're the people of God. They're fellow Israelites. And they're afraid they're going to be considered uh, less than those who come into Canaan, right? They're not even living in Canaan proper. And so for us to hear that, we need to hear that. Here's, here's uh, the statement. All, we always face the difficulty of relegating other Christians who confess the same Lord as sub-flocks. I'll let you think about that for a minute and tell me what you think. There's always a danger for us to think of um, non-reformed Baptists as sub-flocks. Or of, uh, let's see, of... uh, uh, normal, no, that's not the right word, uh, of, of uh, non-charismatics thinking less of charismatics and charismatics wishing so much, if they love us, wishing so much we had the fullness that they had. And sub-flocks, you know, just we're, we're, ser- we're under the same Lord if the gospel's there, and yet we have this tendency, even in our church, even in churches, in our local church, whether it be economic, where James castigates uh, the Christians for uh, setting up economic differences, uh, maybe just differences in uh, personality and taste. I mean, seasons of life, 
There is, we're going to gravitate to people of our season of life or things, but there should be no distinctions and no sense of, I like that word, subflocks, right? We're one under, under the local church, and we're one in the big church, the universal church in that sense. Um, biblically and doctrinally, we're in different places. As long as it's not the essentials of the faith, we need to not think less of each other over where we are. Whether it's the, the amount of knowledge, whether it's the maturity, the Lord is at work in all of us. You want to say something, Charlie? Actually, can I ask a question without getting too far sidetracked here? But they, in this passage in 22, they're making a, a significant effort to say we're not building an altar for burnt sacrifices and, and these things. And yeah. then in 26, we build the altar not for burnt sacrifice, or not for burning or sacrifice, but to be a witness between you and us. Uh -huh. So clearly, they're, they're, and then it goes on and repeats these things, right? So clearly there's an issue with building their own altars. Is that because... That takes place by the high priest. I'm looking for some historical gap here of why that's such an issue for, for yeah. that they would state it two or three times. I have an, I have a, a, my my opinion. Anybody? What what happens uh, in the future from here? If we go to judges, if we go to the kings the divided kingdom. What happens in, in the land in Canaan and on the other side of the Jordan? What do they do with these altars? They worship other gods. And so a sense of, apart from the majority of the people, there's going to be this distrust in other altars. Now, they're not saying we're not going to offer burnt sacrifices. I don't think we're not going to offer them in rebellion. The context is in rebellion. We're not rebelling. I mean, it's part of the Mosaic law for the sacrifices. Yes, they're to do them at the tabernacle. The priests have to do them. And so we'll find out if they're going to do them legitimately with Levites or whoever the priests are. But I think the concern is they're going to be in a foreign land. They've overtaken it. They've conquered it. But there's going to be a picture of your outsiders and you're probably worshiping idols. And they're trying to reiterate they're not. Well, because they go on there to say that we're building it as a witness between you. So, so is there a, a, a physical... Duplication. How is it a witness to, or do we have any idea? How it serves uh, as a witness? Doesn't explain that. Okay. But it, back here in, in 12, why would he go back to numbers but to solidify Moses as my servant who has conquered this side? Joshua he puts them side by side. These next 20. Uh, from 7 to 24 is all of the southern, uh, the western side was they crossed the river, the conquest there. 31 kings are listed. Uh, and uh, 
putting them side by side in a sense to, for the unity, to show Israel as one. Uh, and I think that's the main part of it. Uh, on the west side, verse 7, these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan from Baal Gad, way north. Uh, if you remember uh, Tyre and Sidon up on the coast, Gentile lands, Baal Gad is inland a bit, but that's way up there on the north. Uh, these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan from Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak, way south of the Dead Sea, southwest of the Dead Sea down in the desert that rises towards Seir, which is uh, south, it's Edom, uh, anyway, and Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments. In the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, in the Negev, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So there's all that list of the five basic tribes, uh, main tribes of uh, Canaan. He's just saying they took them all from north to south. They conquered these, and now we could read all of those kings. I'll let you do that when you go home, practice pronouncing them if there's any hard ones. But you see, it's just a list of the king of Jericho one, the king of Ai one, and it just goes on down through there, and it stops at the end of the chapter. Um, uh, under Joshua's leadership, how is it Joshua becomes a leader? Okay, yeah, Moses died. Moses doesn't get to go into the promised land, right? Because of his sin, his uh, trusting in himself uh, more than in God. Uh, it's also because he came back with a positive report from when they went out and did spying. Joshua, yes, Joshua and Caleb, yeah. Joshua's yeah. Joshua older than Caleb. God, what? Joshua's older than Caleb. Oh, Joshua's older than Caleb. Yeah. Moses selected yeah. and laid hands on him, and God spoke to him. Moses ordained, no, uh, he, he what, selected him, put his hands on him, on Joshua. Yeah, designated him essentially as a successor. Yes. And God spoke to Joshua. And God, yes, and God spoke to Joshua. Yes. Okay. Uh, yeah, so anyway, uh, he takes over when Moses goes up on the mountain and dies. He gets to look into the promised land from the mountain, but he doesn't get to go in because he was less than faithful. Uh, uh, and so Joshua uh, goes in. Uh, <clears throat> it seems, you know, if we were to read this all, you'd say, oh, it's kind of like reading a genealogy, right? What's the, it's important to the guy. If you read a genealogy and you say, who cares about this guy and that guy? Well, it's important to him and his family that he's in the genealogy. And these kings, it's important to the army who conquered them. Uh, and so they're there. Uh, here's what Calvin says about it. Though each of those now summarily mentioned was previously given more in detail, 
There's a very good reason for here placing before our eyes, as it were, a living picture of the goodness of God, proving that there had been a complete ratification and performance of the covenant made with Abraham as given in the words uh, in Genesis, unto your seed will I give this land. So Calvin just says this is exciting. It's compact. It gives the fullness of the conquer of the conquest, just as God said it would happen. And so we see that God has fulfilled His word. Thirty-one kings, as I said earlier, uh, uh, defeated by the army from chapter six to chapter eleven. Now reiterated, and. Uh, so just a few things that God keeps his promises. His covenant with Abraham uh, has been fulfilled. Despite outward circumstances, God is able to keep his word, and he does. Uh, no distrust made Abraham waver according to the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he promised. That was Abram. Fully convinced. Uh, so, God keeps his promises. Uh, uh, I read about Richard Baxter. I don't know if you know Richard Baxter, a Puritan. Wrote a book called Reformed Pastor. Not meaning doctrinally reformed, reforming the pastorate to where the pastorate was at least a Christian pastorate at, during his day. Uh, Baxter was one of the uh, nonconformists, part of the English pastors who would not uh, bow to the Church of England when the Church of England became corrupt in the 1600s. He was kicked out of his, ejected from his pulpit along with hundreds of Puritan pastors. Uh, and uh, had no sanctioned place to preach. In fact, he was imprisoned for a while, determined the Church of England was not reformable. You know, the Puritans initially were evangelicals within the Church of England who wanted to purify the Church of England because it was Catholic, too Catholic. And then they came to a point to where the nonconformists and the separatists came to a place to where they said, there's no hope. So we have to leave the Church of England. Uh, Baxter was one of them. Uh, uh, said the Church of England is not reformable. Never did God break his promise to me. Baxter said, never did he fail me or forsake me. The sun may cease to shine on man, the earth to bear us, uh, but God will never cease to be faithful to his promise. Though he was booted from his pulpit, became a pauper, had no support, and was put in prison. But his confidence in the Lord never shook. Um... So, God keeps his promise, right? His promises to us. He will take care of us, give us all that we need. No power of king, emperor, or czar, of police, or pope, or spiritual potentate. 
not the madness of skepticism or superstition, of atheism or heathenism. Not all the resources of the prince of the power of the air are able to hold the ground before the Lord Jesus, acting through the sympathy, faith, and prayers of his people. For my part, were I not now nearing the close of my life, I should go forward with more confidence than ever today in Christ's unrestricted promise. If you have faith, nothing shall be impossible for you in his hands. So, God keeps his promises. God's plans are accomplished in his time. Always in his time. We should be patient. We were just talking in the parking lot, weren't we, Charlie? Yeah. Yeah, you know, the... the, the Beltway feeder was blocked up and I was trying to get here in time and I couldn't because everybody was coming up Vista. June said, you'll make it. And I said, no, I need to be there. I need to get there. I couldn't set up my maps. How are we going to know Joshua? Yeah, well, that's just the way the Lord works for me. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. That's what June sang to me in the car. <laughs> the Lord has his perfect timing, right? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking about sanctification. Uh, I was reading another Puritan, thinking about sanctification. Why does the Bible say walk according to the Spirit and you not fulfill the lust of the flesh? Well, it takes a long time to get somewhere when you walk. Sanctification is a long process, a lifelong process. And we need to be patient, you know, in our fast-paced world, uh, instant gratification, uh, the zeitgeist of our age, you know, the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age, the course of this world uh, Paul talks to the Ephesians about. We walk according to the course of this world before we were saved. You know, the Lord has his own timetables. Um, I, I, I'm not using seven. Or I don't think the commentator that I read was using seven as a spiritual number. He's just talking about patience. William Carey waited seven years before he baptized his first convert in India. Adoniram Judson seven years before he had one conversion in uh, Burma. A man named Morrison, seven years before the first Chinese person was saved. A man named Moffat, ministering in Africa, seven years before there was even one evidence of the Holy Spirit working among these folks he was working with. Uh, Another one seven years before the first convert in the Congo. And then he said this, have you ever waited seven years for anything? Uh, anyway, so um, God's plans are accomplished in his time. We have to be patient. Uh, Another, uh, this is a recitation of God's goodness, and we ought to be thanks, give thanks for this detailed 
we ought to give thanks for particular acts of God. I think we, I, no, no, no. I often say, thank you, God, for being so good to me without detailing many of the things. Detailing, giving God thanks for the acts that, that he accomplishes in our lives. Uh, what what uh, each king here is a sign of God's power and a cause for Israel to be thankful. Each individual king. Uh, if we were to train ourselves to recognize God's goodness act by act and detail by detail, many of us would come to think more highly both of God and of the church. Much of our despondency comes from failing to see how much God has really achieved among us. I'm terrible at journaling. I'll start and make it about two weeks and then I got pieces of journal all over my place. I have one of my sons who tells me, I, I need you to journal. I need to know what's going on. You know, when, when you're gone, I want to know what, what you're thinking and those kinds of things. But I do know when I go back and read the journals, things get so much more specific in God's work. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. And then, of course, uh, Psalm 136, 20 some odd verses that the second half of every verse is, his steadfast love endures forever. And then list 20 some acts of God and his steadfast love endures forever. And his steadfast love endures forever. So, Oh, we used to sing a song. We don't sing it anymore. Count your many blessings. Name them one by one. Count your many blessings, what the Lord has done, or something to that effect. I can't see what the Lord, see what God has done. I can't even remember it anymore. Sang it every week for I don't know how many, or very often for many years. But count your blessings and name them one by one. See what God has done. And then one last point, it foreshadows the final victory. This conquest here foreshadows the final victory. Every battle that the Lord gives victory to God's people throughout Scripture is a a, a shadow, if you will, of the final victory when the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our God. And the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. He shall reign forever and ever. So all of God's victories over his enemies is just a picture, a a marching on of the final victory that is closer than it's ever been. Tonight it's closer than it's ever been. And so chapter 12 is to strengthen our uh, us who live in this world that is fallen, God is redeeming his people. But as we look forward to that day, that final day of joy, and we see that God is faithful here, he'll be faithful to the end. Anything, anything you want, any comments, any encouragements, anything you'd like to say? 
Yes, Warren. Did they go north of Mount Hermon in their conquest? Not that we've read other than these, other than these, I mean, um, it, this Baal Gad is north of Mount Hermon. Tyre and Sidon is north. There's a mention of uh, Hamath, way north. Uh, Mount Hermon is the headwaters of the Jordan River. Okay. The Jordan River yes. Is north. Yeah. Mm hmm. There's a little bitty lake up there uh, north of the Sea of Galilee, but uh, yes, a, a couple of places mentioned here are north of Mount Hermon. And Solomon went farther than any king north to the, Euphrates. Uh, to the Euphrates, which is a long way. Didn't hold it, but uh, he penetrated. Yes, that's, that's good, Craig. Yes. I notice in the, in the next chapter it talks about this is the land that yet remains and one of them has to do with the God of the Spirit. Yeah. The yeah, they didn't, they didn't get to the Philistines yet or ever. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, they gave Gaza back after the, in the 60s or 70s, right? Whenever it was, they gave Gaza back and uh, offered them to be, a, to be a nation, a country, whatever they want to be now. They were offered and they turned it down. They were offering a two-state solution then. Yeah. And the Arabs refused it. Do it, but they wanted from the river to the sea. River to the sea. Yeah. All right, let's pray and we'll get ready for the next hour. Father, we do thank you that you show yourself mighty, you show yourself faithful. And when we're faithless, you continue to be faithful. Lord, we do thank you for the grace that you give us and we know remind us of the specific uh, providences of our life as you take care of us often in ways we don't know so we thank you that you brought us to this point Lord I pray that you would help us to walk on to keep on walking, not knowing the day, how near we are to the end, either of our own personal lives or to the return of our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.